0: Happy Palm Sunday, Sound City. How are you doing? We are in Mark chapter 11 today. Palm Sunday is a day that Christians have celebrated for thousands of years, celebrating the week before Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection, where Jesus enters into Jerusalem and people praise him and celebrate him as the king. And one of the ways that they did that was by waving palm branches, hence the name Palm Sunday. Uh, We didn't see anyone bringing palm branches in this morning, so uh, thank you for that. That can be a little distracting to the people in the chairs nearby you, but uh, we still are going to celebrate Jesus with hopefully the same enthusiasm and the same passion that those people did uh, so many years ago. We're in Mark chapter 11. We'll be reading this story, but some other passages as well, continuing on through uh, the story of Jesus as he heads to Jerusalem, ultimately to die in our place for our sins and rise again If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there, Mark 11, we'll start in verse 1, we'll read through verse 25. What I'd like to do is read straight through this whole passage, I'd like to pray, and then we'll get to work unpacking uh, what it is that God wants to teach us here in his word today. So read with me if you would. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and to Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together, church. Heavenly Father, we are gathered here today to celebrate Jesus, to lift up the name of Jesus. God, my prayer today is that we would be like the people who laid their cloaks down and who waved branches and shouted, Hosanna, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. May we be like that crowd. May we not be the disinterested onlooker. May we not be the ones who maybe later in the week turned their back on Jesus and instead of shouting Hosanna, shouted crucify. Lord Jesus, may we be focused on you today. May we see you in all of your glory, in all of who you are, in all of your greatness. Open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your word. Give us soft hearts to receive truth. We pray all of this in Jesus' good name. And everybody said, amen. I don't know if you've noticed this, but there are times in life, uh, in a variety of different experiences where things that are seemingly opposites, things that seem like they might not go together actually do work really well together if they're held in the proper balance. Think of a couple examples. Uh, Is anybody here uh, into cooking? Anybody here like to cook and and make food? Okay, a couple of you. Uh, None of the moms raise their hands, by the way. They're like, "I just do it so my family doesn't starve, right? If you're into cooking, you know how certain flavors work well together and things that maybe uh, would be kind of an odd flavor by themselves, this flavor and that flavor, they actually combine together and they work really well together if you get them in the right balance. Or if you're thinking of maybe movies, there can be different themes in a movie. It could be a a very dark and a a serious and intense movie, but then certain jokes and humor, it actually works really well when you strike that balance. Or for myself as a musician, uh, I I love music. One of my favorite composers is um, Igor Stravinsky. I don't know if anybody is a fan of Stravinsky's music. He has a way of doing some of the most beautiful music, and then he'll just put some notes in there that just... Mm, they kind of, they, they would be sour notes. They would be bad notes if, if taken out of context, but in the context, it actually works really well together. There's these happy sounding notes, and then there's these dark sounding notes. In fact, if all you have is music that's just the happy sounding notes, we call that Yanni or New Age music, right? It's just kind of like eating uh, cotton candy. It just doesn't work well. You need those contrasts. What we see today in our passage is we see that Jesus is kind of like that. Jesus can be a little bit frustrating at times. No, let me say that again. Jesus can be a lot frustrating at times because he, in who he is, contains some very extreme things. Jesus is both incredibly humble, and yet Jesus is astonishingly bold and direct. In the one passage that we just read, And by the way, I would encourage you to, as you look at these these sections of Scripture, these 25 verses that we read, it's one story. Even though in your Bible there's different headings that kind of breaks it up into different sections, it's really one story. It flows from one into the next, into the next, and they're all tied together. And I hope to help you see that today. But as we read through this passage, there's the sweet notes and there's some dark notes. Some things that are maybe a little bit striking as we look at them. Jesus seems to sometimes contain fierce opposites within his one personality. Jesus is both bold and humble. There's an author named G.K. Chesterton. Uh, I don't know if any of you have heard of G.K. Chesterton. He wrote a book called Orthodoxy, and he addressed this, this idea of these tensions in the Christian faith. He, he talks about how sometimes people want to take uh, things, and you, know, you talk about finding a balance, and so they'll take two extreme things and kind of make it just a mushy Nothing. Half of this, half of that, a little bit bold, a little bit humble. He says, no, in the Christian faith, the the true tension is found when both things are held at full volume. This is what he says. He says this. People always talk about finding balance. He says, here again in short, Christianity got over the difficulty of combining furious opposites by keeping them both and keeping them both furious. So we don't need to try to downplay Jesus' humility. And we don't need to try to downplay Jesus' boldness and even ferocity. We're going to see both in full display in this passage today. And I hope and I pray that for all of you, it will be instructive. It will be uh, challenging for you as we go through this passage. So let's go back to verse 1 and start to unpack what it is that God wants to teach us here today. Verse 1, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and to Bethany at the Mount of Olives, let's pause right here, just context. For the last few chapters, Jesus has been directly telling his disciples, we must go to Jerusalem. This is where the story is going to reach its climax. We have to go to Jerusalem. He's even been telling his disciples that he is going to be crucified, he is going to die, and he's even telling them that he is going to rise again. So they're on the march. They're headed to Jerusalem, and they come to these two little villages, Bethany and Bethphage both of which are little small villages on the outskirts of the big city, Jerusalem. If you want an analogy, think of it. This is Shoreline and Edmonds on your way into Seattle, right? Right on the outskirts, the the city of Bethphage. We don't know exactly where that is, but Bethany, we have uh, a lot of archaeological evidence. We know where it's at. It was probably about 700 people at the time of Jesus. Just a small village, a small community. You may also remember that Bethany is the village where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Mary and Martha, the sisters, and their brother Lazarus, they were residents of the city of Bethany. And so Jesus, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, Jesus would have been very well known in that town. Jesus had a lot of, not just followers, but friends in the city of Bethany, the village of Bethany, I should say. So they're on their way to Jerusalem. They're gonna stop in Bethany and Bethphage. Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately, that's our favorite word in the book of Mark, right? Immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. So this is a young male colt. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Now, if you are the disciples at this moment... Just imagine, put yourself in their shoes. Okay, Jesus, you want me to go into the village, steal somebody's donkey, and just say, no, 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 the Lord needs it. Uh, One of our production team guys was saying, if somebody walked into my driveway and says, hey, I just got to take your car, the Lord needs it, Uh, don't worry about it. I think I would need to talk to the Lord directly about that, right? And they went away, and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it, just like Jesus said. And some of those standing there said to them, "Uh, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. Now remember, Jesus was well known in Bethany. So it's not too much of a stretch to think that they said, hey, Jesus wants to use this. Just we'll, we'll bring it back. We promise. Okay, we know Jesus. We trust Jesus. Go ahead. They told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. Now listen, this colt, this, this young donkey on which no one has ever sat That seems like some maybe superfluous detail, some unnecessary detail. Why is Mark telling us that this was a donkey that had never been sat upon? Why is he telling us that it's such a young male colt? As we have seen time and time again throughout the gospel of Mark, Jesus is being very intentional with these things. Jesus is trying to tell us about who he is and what it is that he has come to do. Jesus is not just randomly saying, hey, I'm tired of walking. Could you guys go find me a a really short horse, like something that like a hobbit would ride on? Can you just, can you find me something really tiny? You, You think I'm joking, I'm not. I'm reading The Hobbit right now. Bilbo gets a donkey, a young donkey. This is our Lord and Savior riding on a hobbit horse. No, Jesus is in fact very specifically referencing a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah, about the coming of the king. It's found in Zechariah, one of the Old Testament prophets, Zechariah 9, 9. I'll read it to you. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. The king is coming. This is, this is also, you must remember, this is the week of Passover, This is the big celebration week for the people of God where they celebrated God liberating them from the tyranny of the Egyptians. God setting them free. They're ready to party. They're ready to celebrate. And you're telling me that the king is coming right now, this time. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. That sounds like somebody who's in charge, right? Righteous, perfect, blameless, and having the power of salvation, and yet humble and mounted on a donkey, the foal of a donkey. There's, there are two things that this donkey really symbolizes. Number one is the humility of Jesus. Even though he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, as Philippians says, even though he exists in the very form of God, he humbled himself to show us what his kingdom is like. The other thing that this donkey symbolizes is purity. This donkey has never been ridden on. This, this young colt has never had anyone ride on it before. And actually, if you go back in the Old Testament, many of the sacrifices you had to give animals or use oxen that had never been you know, yoked up, had never gone to work, so to speak. It's a, it's a symbol of purity, And so Jesus is showing us his humility, but he's also showing us his purity. Did you know that Jesus never sinned? In his earthly life, as he walked among the people and experienced every trial and hardship and temptation that we do, Jesus never sinned. He was perfect. And there's an allusion to that even in this young donkey. So now we see his entrance into Jerusalem, picking up in verse seven. And they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road. Think about this. This is the Near East. This is dusty, dry desert. They're throwing their clothes down on the street to make a path. This is rolling out the proverbial red carpet. They threw their cloaks, they spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. All right, I want you to see this. This is a parade, this is a celebration. They're rolling out the, 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 the cloaks, they're, they're spreading out the leafy branches, right? You know, one of the disciples is probably throwing skittles to the crowd, right? You guys get that reference, right? Anybody? Just a quick show of hands. Well, let's not talk about this year's Super Bowl. Last year, after the Seahawks won the Super Bowl, did any of you go to the party, the, the parade on their return? You people are crazy. Okay, I see you guys. Yeah, that was, that was I did not go. I watched it on the news like a normal person. Um, but these crowds, just the throng of people going, you know, just mad for their conquering, returning heroes. This is kind of like the scene. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem and people are rejoicing, partying, celebrating. And here is Jesus writing on a little Hobbit horse, right? It'd be the equivalent of you know putting Russell Wilson in a Dodge Neon, right? Like, and if you own a Dodge Neon, I'm not picking on you. I used to own one too. I'm just saying that's not usually your parade car, right? Just the, the contrast here. They're shouting out some things. They're shouting out Hosanna. Hosanna is an Old Testament word that means praise the God who saves. It's both a, a cry of praise, but it's also a plea. God, will you save us? We need to be rescued. We need to be redeemed. We need to be pulled out of the predicament that we find ourselves in. Hosanna, Hosanna. What a great word. They're also saying, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That means the one who comes with God's authority. This is the one who comes and acts on God's behalf. This is God's agent. If, you, if you're a police officer, you say, you know, I come in the name of the law or, stop in the name of the law. You're coming on the authority of the law. Jesus here is coming in the name of the Lord. He is coming as God's representative. Indeed, we know that Jesus is God himself. They're saying, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. See, the the Old Testament scriptures had prophesied and God had promised to King David long, long before that one of David's descendants would always be on the throne. Somebody who was descended from David would always be the king. So they're crying out, this is the one. Jesus is the king. He's the one that we've been waiting for. We don't want to have these uh, Romans ruling over us. We don't want to have this puppet king, Herod, who's basically the, the Roman lapdog just doing whatever they want. We want a real king, the son of David, and Jesus is the one. And they're saying, Hosanna in the highest. You know, that's what the angels sang when Jesus was born. And here the crowds are singing it, Hosanna in the highest. This means God himself is hearing our cry for deliverance. In the highest, that means in the heavens, in in God's domain where God dwells. This is extreme praise. This is the highest praise. This is not just celebrating a king. This is, in fact, worship. And I would encourage you to see this. Some of you maybe have have had struggles with, is Jesus really God? Or maybe you have friends who have struggled with, is Jesus really God? I thought he was just a good teacher. He was just a good man. No, the Bible says that only God alone can be worshiped. And yet here Jesus is allowing himself to be worshiped. Jesus was was a, you know, quote unquote, good Jewish man. He would have known that you do not praise and worship anyone other than God. And here Jesus is allowing himself to be praised and worshiped. This is the coming of the king. And you have to think the emotions were all the more heightened by the fact that it was Passover week. We're about to rejoice and celebrate the freedom and the liberation that God gave to our forefathers millennia ago, and now we get to see it all come. It all is going to happen right now, this week. Do you see the joy? Do you see the elation? And he entered Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And he went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Okay, this is Sunday. First day of the week. This would have actually been a work day. So they threw this parade on a work day. People probably got off work like you guys did to go to the parade, right? But he gets into the temple. He looks around surveys, kind of imagine Jesus just kind of stroking his chin. And he says, I'll be back tomorrow. Heads back out of town. Verse 12, we get this interesting scene here. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. So now they're, now they're going back into Jerusalem. So Jesus is hungry, okay? You can identify with that, right? You've been hungry, maybe a little cranky because of being hungry. He was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. Oh, there's a fig tree over there. Common practice. It probably didn't belong to anyone. It's probably just a a wild tree growing along the side of the road. Jesus thought, I'm going to go over and see if there's any figs. The the fig tree, uh, we don't probably know this because we don't have fig trees. Anybody have a fig tree? Oh, okay, we have one fig tree. Two. Oh, my goodness. You guys can come up and correct me if I'm wrong on this. Per my understanding, meaning I read some books, fig trees will bloom about three times a year. And there'll be three different seasons of fruits. And then early before the figs come out, there's like these little buds and you can actually pick them and eat them. And so they would call them the, the early season figs. So the, the tree is fully, you know, fully leafed. It's, it's, it looks and appears to be healthy and growing. Jesus walks up to it. He found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard it. You know that that was put in as a reference, like, can you believe what Jesus just said? Okay, on first glance, this kind of just, it kind of looks like Jesus, not his best moment. Kind of looks like Jesus is hangry. You know what hangry is? Hungry and angry combined, right? Get a little hangry. Jesus is looking for some figs, he walks up to the tree. Curse you. <laughs> and the disciples like, what? <laughs> let's keep going. This, if this is Jesus' mood now, I can't wait to see how he's going to act when we get to the temple, right? Jesus just curses the tree, lets it have it. I'm not going to unpack this fully now because we're going to come back to it in a minute, but I just want you to think about this. It says that it had leaves, but no fruit. It looked and appeared to be healthy, But it really wasn't. Growth without fruit is actually a sign of decay. So let's think about that. We'll come back to it in a minute. Picking up in verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Let me explain this a little bit to you. I want to see a couple of things. First of all, I want you to understand the chaos that this scene would have actually been. This is the The highest holy week, the highest and biggest celebration for the Jewish people. Like I've mentioned before, it's kind of their Super Bowl meets their Independence Day meets Christmas, all rolled into one. This is the week of celebration. There's an early Jewish historian by the name of Josephus who tells us that during the Passover week, his best estimate was that 255,000 lambs would have been slaughtered a quarter of a million lambs would have been slaughtered. Not only that, but one lamb could be for maybe a family of, let's say, eight to ten. So he estimates roughly two and a half million people trying to come through the temple. Now, depending on people's livelihood, depending on people's uh, location where they live, you wouldn't necessarily bring the doves or the, the pigeons for your sacrifice all the way with you. You would try to find that and buy that there in Jerusalem. And so the temple authorities had set up, there's there's an outer court of the temple, it's called the Court of the Gentiles. And they'd set up this whole entire outer court just filled with merchants buying and selling, trading coins because you couldn't pay the temple tax with a coin that had a pagan ruler on it. You had to trade uh, for their temple money. Actually, when I think about it, the the chaos and the noise and the fact that you have to exchange your money for money that's only used there, it's kind of like they'd turn the temple into Chuck E. Cheese right? But actually think about this. Any of you, you know, uh, seen footage of the stock market, the New York, New York Stock Exchange, or maybe some of you have even been there in person. You know, the, the noise of financial trading and people shouting over the top of each other, some of you have been to a, 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 a game, you know, Seahawks game, and you've been there in the stadium and people jostling and fighting and pushing and massive crowds going every which way. Some of you have been to the fair, you know, the state fair, and you've gone kind of looked at all the livestock and you smell that in the air. Just take all of that and bundle up into one big scene. That is what is happening here. A quarter of a million lambs, a couple of million people buying and selling and trading coins. This is mayhem and Jesus, with his followers, goes in and takes charge. He says he wouldn't even let anyone pass through. They wouldn't let anyone carry anything through the temple. This is another thing I want you to see is that this Gentile court, this outer court, was specifically designed to be a place where the people who were not Jewish, people who were not the chosen people of God, could come and could worship and could pray. Not only was it filled up with merchants so that the Gentiles couldn't come and worship and pray. But apparently people were just using it as a pass-through. People are coming and going all over Jerusalem. They're trying to get from one side of the city to the other, and they're just using the temple as a shortcut. And so Jesus puts a stop to that. There's supposed to be worship. There's supposed to be prayer. And it's, it's just turned into this zoo. And the third thing I want you to see is in these next verses. After he drives out the, the money changers. It says in verse 17, and he was teaching them and saying to them. So not only did Jesus cause this huge scene, cause this huge stir, but then he sat down and started to preach, started to teach. He was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and they were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And then when evening came, they went out of the city. So Jesus here has enraged the religious leaders. They have in fact set up a monopoly where they alone are profiting from all of these these sacrifices. They're the ones who are profiting from all of this and Jesus directly calls them out. I want you to see that, I want you to see something here too. I don't want you to pull this verse or this passage out of context and draw the conclusion that Jesus is now somehow anti-business. Okay? Some, some will do that. Some would take this and say, see, Jesus, this is, this is Jesus and he's a socialist and he hates capitalism and he doesn't want anybody to trade or make money or do anything like that. No, that's not true at all. What Jesus is not fond of here is the temple area not being used for what it was supposed to be used for. It wasn't producing the fruit that he, as God, wanted it to be producing. And what's more, the religious leaders had turned it into a monopoly and were oppressing, oppressing the people. This was not a good scene. Jesus is not happy, not because of financial transactions. He's not happy because it is not being used for the purpose that God intended. And it says he began to teach them about the purpose of the temple. Indeed, Jesus quotes from Isaiah and he quotes from Jeremiah in this, in this uh, verse, in verse 17, where it says, Is it not written? I thought we could just take a minute so that we, like the disciples and like the people in the temple, that they could understand the purpose of the temple. Let me let me start with this: the temple, the purpose of the temple, we have to start with the conversation about God's desire to be with his people. From the beginning to the last pages of the scripture, we see a God who desires to be with his people. God's heartbeat is, I will be your God and you will be my people. God is a relational God. Did you know that? God is relational first and foremost because he's Trinity. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. In, In who God is are three persons, all equal, all fully God, existing in loving relationship and harmony and community for all of eternity. God didn't create mankind because he was lonely, by the way. He created us because he loves us and he wanted to invite us into relationship with him. This conversation about the temple starts with with Eden, where God and mankind enjoyed perfect fellowship and relationship, but then something happened. Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled against God. They didn't listen to what it is that, that God said was good for them and they therefore faced judgment. It says that God drove them out of the garden. It said that a flaming sword was placed to keep them from coming back in. And ever since, there has been a distance, a relational distance between God and man. The, the story of the temple then goes to the tabernacle while God spoke to Moses and said, I want you to build a tent. And while you're wandering around in the desert, you're gonna build a tent and there will be a special place inside of this tent, this tabernacle, where God and man can meet together. It will in fact be a, a picture of what heaven will be like. That tabernacle was temporary when the, the people of God finally moved into the land, the promised land that God gave to them. They actually built the temple. King Solomon built the temple about a thousand years before the time of Jesus. He, he built the temple and it says that the glory of God was thick like smoke. It was a pretty uh, awe-inspiring scene when God moved into his temple. But even then at that temple, it says, that specifically says, I think it's in 1 Kings, God doesn't live in a house built by the hands of men. This temple is a picture, again, of God's desire to be in relationship with people. That temple was destroyed, and shortly before Jesus was born, a new temple was built by Herod. It's called Herod's Temple. This is the second temple. Sometimes you'll hear scholars refer to it as second temple Judaism, because right around this time, it was the second temple, and it was actually, if if it could even be said, more beautiful, more extravagant, more opulent than even Solomon's temple. Some of the writers at this time said that this temple that was there during Jesus' time was the eighth wonder of the world. It was beautiful. It was massive. And this is a picture of where God wants to dwell with his people, but something different about this temple. The presence of God never landed on that temple in the same way. Nowhere do we read. You can go through the, the books of like Ezra and Nehemiah, they're rebuilding the temple and the glory of God just doesn't show up the way it did for Solomon. Why is that? Because Jesus shows up. Jesus is the new temple. He is the new dwelling place of God where God and man meet together fully. And then Jesus was killed on the cross for our sins, rose again, ascended into the right hand of the Father in heaven, and has promised to one day return and fully establish his kingdom here on earth. And we see in Revelation a picture where the, the city descends from heaven and it joins with earth and God and man are together. Again, in perfect harmony and unity, like Eden, even better in some ways. That's the picture. That's the flow of the temple. It's where God and man meet together. And there were two purposes. The first purpose was that it would be a meeting place between God and man. And the second purpose is this, that it would be a place of invitation for all to come and worship the one true God. An invitation for all to come and worship the one true God not just the Jewish people, not just the chosen people of God, but the Gentiles as well. I'm going to read you these passages that Jesus quotes from and and references. I want you to see the promise and the warnings. This temple, this is written hundreds of years before Jesus was born, but this is the promise from God. We're in Isaiah 56, verses 6 through 8. This is what Jesus would have been referencing. He says this, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, I don't know if you know this, that's us. All of you who are here who are not of Jewish descent or or Jewish origin, we're the foreigners. We're the ones who got called in to be a part of God's people, grafted in to to the tree as Paul uses in Romans. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, these I will bring to my holy mountain and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. This would have been scandalous. The Gentiles aren't supposed to come offer sacrifices. God says, no, I'm going to accept their sacrifices. I'm going to include people who are not just this one select group. I'm going to include people from every nation. Their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. See that promise? I I don't know if you know this. You should be really excited because that has come true. That is you and I. We are living, breathing proof that that prophecy that was written some 2,700 years ago has come true in Jesus. We have now been offered forgiveness. If you are a Christian, you are one of those foreigners who is now getting to participate in God's house of prayer. And that outer court, that Gentile court that I mentioned in the temple was supposed to be the place where that happened. A direct representation of of this verse. However, there's warnings in Jeremiah 7. This is what also uh, is quoted by Jesus. Jeremiah 7, uh, verses one through 11, I'll read some selections from it. It says this, "'The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, "'stand in the gate of the Lord's house "'and proclaim there his word and say, "'Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, "'who enter these gates to worship the Lord.'" Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. This is a warning. This is a word of correction. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Kind of interesting, just repeats it over and over again. Well, it's just the temple, just words. Now, this is the temple of the Lord. No, no, no. Don't trust in empty, vain, repetitive words. What's the heart? For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. This promise is that you'll be able to live there forever. But this warning of you need to amend your ways. Verse 11, has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Again, this was written hundreds of years before Jesus ever came, but it was a prophetic warning that if you do not use the temple for its intended purpose, if you do not bear the fruit that this temple is supposed to produce, there will be judgment. You will not be allowed to remain in this place of blessing. And Jesus quotes directly from this. It has now become a den of robbers. The temple was supposed to be the place where all people are invited in to pray and to worship God. And instead, it has become a place of oppression, a place of chaos, a place of confusion and busyness. I even wonder, this isn't explicit in the text, but I even wonder if just the chaos and the busyness of it all isn't something that we experience in our worship of God. Where our hearts are supposed to be still, our hearts are supposed to be worshipful, our hearts are supposed to be focused on God, and yet in our culture, and in our day, we're so easily distracted. We're so easily turned to other things, maybe maybe even good things. I'm not even saying bad things. I'm just saying we're distracted. We don't focus our hearts on the true worship of God as he wants it. Consequently, our lives sometimes don't bear the fruit that we're supposed to bear. I know it's a hard word, but we need to evaluate. I, I would tell you this. It is not legalistic for me or any of your other pastors to say that you should make attending church a priority. It's not legalistic to say that you should prioritize being still and praying and reading the scriptures. It's not legalistic to say that you need to be in community with other Christians. There is a legalistic way to say all of those things, but just to say that in and of itself is not legalistic. It's for your good. It's right worship of God. It's who he has called you to be and how he has called you to be in relationship with you because God wants to be with his people. That's his heart. So the religious leaders are getting antsy. They're getting ready to kill him. So Jesus decides to skip town because Jesus is not an idiot. When evening came, they went out of the city. It says in verse 19. You also have to remember too, Jesus knows when he is supposed to die. He is not supposed to die the week before Passover. He is supposed to die on the Passover, the day when lambs are sacrificed to atone for the sins of the people. I hope you'll come for Good Friday when we celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus. Verse 20. It's still going. This is still one story. <laughs> this is still going. As they passed by in the morning, so he's going back into Jerusalem. He's, he's a commuter, Shoreline, Jesus gets it. Hebrews was telling the truth. He has been tempted and tried in every way just like us and yet was without sin. He never cussed out the donkey in the camel lane. You know what I mean? Like he, he was a commuter. He gets it. He identifies with us in our weakness. I love that. That's encouraging. I hope, I hope you take away something more than that from this sermon, but if nothing else, as they passed by in the morning, sorry, I'll fix that for the next service. As they passed by in the morning, They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. This is the next day. This tree is dead, withered. And Peter remembered and said to him, remember, the disciples had heard? Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, teacher, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And you kind of wonder what response Peter expects at this time. Like You saw me calm the wind and the waves, right? You saw me cast the demons out of the the maniac into the pigs. You've seen me do all sorts of things. Really? You're that surprised about a tree dying? What is is Jesus' response? You idiot? No, he says, Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. So Jesus' response is to point them to faith, faith in God, faith in God. And then he goes to this, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, forgive so that your father who also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. So what's going on here? This fig tree, we see stands as a representation of the temple this fig tree looked leafy it looked good on the outside but it wasn't bearing the fruit that it was supposed to bear and jesus cursed it he says i will remove you from your purpose this tree is no longer needed you're going to die now and it's a symbol it's a picture of the temple on the outside the temple looked busy oh it looked beautiful oh it looked grand quarter million lambs being slaughtered for sacrifices it looked really good but when jesus entered the, ta- the temple he did not find faith in god he did not find the fruit that was supposed to be produced by the temple he found a dead and lifeless thing the the tree is a symbol for the temple Shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection, within just a couple of decades, that temple would be destroyed forever. There, to this day, are no more sacrifices on the Temple Mount. You know why? Because Jesus was sacrificed once and for all. There's no more sacrifices needed because Jesus himself died. The temple was not being utilized for its purpose. Jesus, the new temple of God, shows up and fulfills the purpose perfectly where God and man meet in Jesus Christ. Jesus is where now all mankind is invited. Jew and Gentile alike are all invited to come into right relationship with God, but it's only through Jesus. And you have to understand this, this, this passage here but it talks about believe in God, have faith. If, if anyone says this mountain be taken up and throw it in the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believe whatever it says will come to pass, it will be done. Listen, God is not interested in massive geological disturbances, okay? He's not interested in actually taking mountains and throwing them into the sea, although that would be cool. Especially when you consider that this Mount of Olives is several thousand feet above sea level and the Dead Sea is well below sea level. That's a pretty significant drop, what Jesus is saying is this. You think it's hard to curse a fig tree and see it die? Try overturning all of the wickedness and sinfulness of mankind. You want to see what's hard to do? Try, try turning this whole entire crazy mixed up upside down world right side up where God is glorified and worshiped as he ought to be. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, if you just believe hard enough, you too can have a red Lamborghini. No, he's saying, have faith in God. And what God's plan is, is to save people from every nation, every skin color, every language, every socioeconomic status. That is the people of God that he is wanting to bring in from all the ends of the earth. That's who our God is. But then he says, have faith in God, but you need to understand that this faith in God lands you on forgiveness. The whole point of the temple sacrifices was to atone for people's sin. You and I are sinful by nature and by choice. I don't know if you know this, one out of every one babies who is born turns out to be a sinner. And if you don't believe me, Pastor Shane would love to have you volunteer in the nursery for a while, okay? Yeah. Amen? We all are sinners, and sin requires a sacrifice, okay? We know this intuitively We messed it up, but we know this intuitively. We know that some people say, oh, sacrifice, that's so barbaric, that's so medieval. I I can't believe you'd even talk about that. No, it's not. Husbands, how many of you know that you have really messed up with your wife and you stop at uh, at the store on the way home and you get some flowers and some candy and a a nice bottle of wine that she likes, right? It's a propitiation to appease the wrath of your wife, right? (laughs) We know this intuitively. We, We act this out intuitively. We know that when something has gone wrong, somebody has to pay for it. One of our musicians here at the church recently had their guitar stolen. Somebody's going to have to pay for that. That was a sin. There's a debt now. Where's that money going to come from? Who's going to pay for it? Insurance, you, somebody? No, the gospel says this. Our sin has accrued a great debt before God, and God himself pays it. In Jesus Christ, his sacrifice on the cross is is the sacrifice that we need to be forgiven. When you understand that, when you truly exercise faith in God, Jesus says, then you're gonna start praying. And you're gonna realize that you are not treating people as graciously as God has treated you. And you're gonna need to do some business with God and you're gonna need to do some business with them. Whenever you stand praying, oh, thank you, God, for your grace. Oh, thank you for forgiving me. Oh, thank you for all your blessings. Forgive if you have what? Anything? Against who? Anyone? Anyone? That sounds pretty all-encompassing. So that your father in heaven, who is through so your father who also is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. Jesus' final word is forgiveness. A forgiveness that comes from faith. Do you have faith that God will forgive your sin? Do you have faith that God provided the perfect sacrifice in Jesus? The one that made all of those quarter a million lambs being slaughtered obsolete? Do you have faith that when God forgives you a great unpayable debt, that what he wants from you in return is to love and forgive others in the same way. His final word is forgiveness. Now I want you to see this. We've 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 covered a lot of ground. This is 25 verses, okay? This is a lot of ground to cover. There's much, much more that could be said. But I don't want to keep you here until Good Friday, so let me summarize and and, and bring this to conclusion this way. Jesus is the king. We see that clearly. Jesus gets on the the colt and he rides into town. That is absolutely a declaration that Jesus is the king. But the question is, what is his kingdom like? We've seen all these different threads, all these different angles, all these different, uh, uh, if I could even say it this way, personality traits of Jesus in these stories that we've read. So Jesus is the king. What is his kingdom like? I'll give you four pairs that I think are helpful for us. The first one is this. Jesus' kingdom is both humble and bold. Jesus exercised great humility riding on that donkey. Kings, conquering warrior kings ride on big, awesome horses, right? Super Bowl champions ride on a stretch limo or an Escalade, not a Dodge Neon. Jesus exercised the most humility that we ever have seen. Not just riding on the donkey, but washing his disciples' feet and talking about being the servant of all and ultimately dying a death on a cross, a shameful death. And yet, at the same time, this humble king is the one who went in with 12 followers and took charge of the entire temple. In their face, you will not misuse God's house. You will not misrepresent God this way. I will teach you from the scriptures what it actually says. Do you see these seemingly opposites being held together in perfect tension in Jesus, this is what his kingdom is like, both bold and humble. Jesus' kingdom is both fruitful and worshipful. The tree and the temple, there there was a job to do. There was fruit to be produced. There was a desired result that Jesus had in mind. And yet at the same time, we see Jesus bringing a right heart of worship. You ever felt that tension? You ever felt that tension? Like, oh, I've just got so much to do. I've got so much to do. I've got so much to do. Oh, I need to pray. I need to read my Bible. Oh, the a quote just came to my mind. I, won't be, I can't remember who said it, but uh, I think it was Martin Luther's. I have so much to do today. I have to pray for three hours before I even try starting it. I'm butchering the quote. I'll, look at, I'll fix that for the next service too. Sorry. But just this idea of I cannot even hope to attempt to accomplish all that God has called me to if I don't first take time and abide in him. You know, Sound City, that's one of the reasons why in our mission statement we said being disciples and making disciples because the one flows out of the other. We don't just make disciples. We must first be disciples. We don't just sit and be disciples. We do go and make disciples. Do you feel that tension? Both are present in the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus is the king and his kingdom is both forgiving and just. Do you see the the forgiveness in Jesus' last words? You must forgive, forgive all. There's another um, gospel that tells the story where Jesus it says that Jesus just wept over the city. He was brokenhearted for them. And yet, he drew a line in the sand. He says, this is, this is sinful, this is not. This is right, this is wrong. Some of you, um, you're gonna feel that tension. You're gonna find yourself maybe kind of falling more on one side or the other. Those of us who are more kind of the, um, it's a broad strokes, but kind of more of the liberal progressive persuasion You're going to find yourself drawn towards mercy and compassion and love and grace and forgiveness. And those of you who are maybe more of the conservative or even if I could use the word fundamentalist sort of leaning type, you'll find yourself wanting to point to truth and right and wrong and justice. To try to pick one or the other is a false dichotomy. That's an unbiblical dichotomy. God's kingdom is both just and righteous, both forgiving and truthful. Last one, I want you to see this. Jesus is the king, and his kingdom is both inclusive and exclusive. Here's the thing. All are invited. The call to the nations goes out. People from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, they're all invited. It's very inclusive. But it is only through Jesus Christ and only by faith in him and his finished work on the cross that we enter in. You don't get to just pick your own entrance into heaven. It's exclusive. Jesus says, I am the narrow door. He says, I am the way. But it's open to anyone. These tensions, they, they push and pull at us. I can even sense right now in the room some of the uncomfortableness because some of you are feeling those tensions. To try to say that one or the other is, is more right or more biblical is just simply not a division that the scripture is interested in making. Amen. And you have to find a way, like G.K. Chesterton said, to embrace these, these seemingly polar opposites because in them is the kingdom of God. I'll close with this. I think I've said that like three times so far the sermon. I really will close with this. The cross is the ultimate display of these extremes coming together. At the cross of Jesus Christ, we see both the mercy of God on sinful people and we see the justice of God poured out on Jesus. We see the love of God for his creation. We see the wrath of God poured out on Jesus. It's been said that the cross is where Mercy and justice meet. It's a reference from Psalm 85. I'll close with this. His salvation is very near those who fear him. This is another Old Testament reference, looking forward to the cross. His salvation is very near those who fear him so that glory may dwell in our land. Faithful love and truth will join together. Righteousness and peace will embrace. This is God's kingdom. And you're called to respond. For those of you who are Christians, this is a call for you to respond in your heart to say, where am I out of balance? Where am I out of alignment? Where do I like one aspect of Jesus' personality but not another aspect? For those of you who are here who are not Christians, this is an invitation to humble yourself and begin to follow Jesus as the king. Don't live life as your own king. Follow him as the king. Bend your knee, submit to him, and understand that his plan is only good for you. There's an invitation to receive salvation today. I'm going to call us to a time of response now. We're going to respond in a couple of ways. The first way that we're going to respond is through the giving of our tithes and our offerings. And I would say this to you. We give of our tithes and offerings. The New Testament doesn't put a fixed percent. The Old Testament talks about 10% tithe. That's probably a good benchmark for you. But the New Testament talks about it being sacrificial. Just as we saw in the temple, sacrifices being offered. I encourage you to give in a way that's sacrificial. You want to feel it. So I'll invite the financial stewards to come forward. I'll just really briefly, for those of you who may be new, just give you some instruction on on how to give. If you're a guest, you're under no obligation to give whatsoever. You're welcome to, but don't feel obliged. If you want to give, you can give cash or check. You can give recurring giving online. Or some of you, I mentioned this specifically, some of you might want to do the text to give thing. The number's up on the screen. I'll leave it up on the screen. Here's why. Your phone is a great source of distraction for you, right? Right? You have probably watched enough cat videos and played enough Angry Birds on your phone. Maybe this is an opportunity, invitation for you to reclaim that space of your phone of actually texting to give and use it as an act of worship. So I just mentioned that to you. I actually have I thought that whole idea of texting to give was lunacy, and then several people said that to me, like, oh, that actually makes sense. While they're collecting the offering, I'll leave that number up on the screen, but let's let's look at some discussion questions for this week in community. First one says: How does Jesus hold things that things that seem like opposites together? How is it even possible? There's many, many more we could have unpacked. These are the ones that we just saw clearly in our passage here. Second, which of the tensions in this week's passage resonates with you? Humble versus bold, fruitful versus worshipful, forgiveness versus justice, inclusivity versus exclusivity? Where do you find yourself prone to imbalance, maybe one extreme or the other? Third, let's talk about the cross. How is the cross the ultimate display of both love and judgment, of both mercy and righteousness? Number four, is Jesus, this is a personal one. This is where we go from discussing, this is where we go to meddling, right? Is Jesus truly the king in your life? How are these aspects of his kingdom being lived out and where is God wanting you to grow? I skipped one here. Uh, Is Jesus, if Jesus was to show up at your temple, your proverbial temple, what would his reaction be? That's both individual and corporate. Lastly, number six, who does Jesus want you to invite and include? so they can share in the joy of God's kingdom. This is a a lifestyle, by the way, of invitation and including and saying, all are welcome to come and know God. This is a great opportunity this week with Easter coming up. There are many people who'd be willing to go to an Easter service who maybe would never attend church any other time of the year and to offer them the gift of God's grace and his love and his mercy and his forgiveness and his salvation. I just ask you, who is God putting on your heart to pray for, to invite, and to include? Today, we're also going to respond through the celebration of the Lord's table. This is where we take the bread and we dip it into the wine or the juice. And we remember that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was poured out for us, that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. And today, as we celebrate the Lord's table, I would invite you to remember that Jesus' sacrifice was a once and for all thing. It's done. It's finished. His work is complete and you can now have assurance of salvation. And today, may God even strengthen your faith in that as you receive the bread and you receive the cup. We do practice an open table. If you're a guest, you're welcome to join us at the table if you are a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, the invitation is the same. Give your sin to Jesus, trust in him, and come forward and join us at the table for the first time. We're also going to sing. We're going to sing because Jesus is the king and every king has a soundtrack as he marches in, right? Mm -hmm. So I invite you to sing and to celebrate. The band is going to lead us in joyful celebration of Jesus as the king. So let's stand together, I'll pray, and then Elizabeth and the team will lead us in song. Let's pray together. God, thank you that you sent Jesus, the king, the humble king, yet the one who is bold enough to tell us that we are sinful and we need to walk in repentance. Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to lay down your life as a sacrifice for us on the cross, in our place. But Jesus, we thank you that on the third day you rose again and you're alive forevermore. We don't serve a, 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 just a crucified Savior. We serve a crucified and a risen Savior. A King who is alive forevermore, and who will sit on the throne for all of eternity. God, would we respond now with joy and with faith to that King? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said... Amen. Church, come forward and receive when you're ready.